The secret to well-being is discovering the power that is your birthright, the power to create a happier, healthier life drawn from our own vast internal resources. Join Jules and her guests as they gently guide you to shift your perspective from the familiar negative to the divinely connected, a place that will not only positively impact your world, but possibly shift the planet. It's all right here on Law of Attraction Talk Radio. Well, welcome to Law of Attraction Talk Radio. I'm Jules from beautiful Southern California. Even though it's 117 degrees out, that's okay because the universe provided something called the air conditioning unit. Oh, thank goodness. And I'm appreciating it and so are my cats and so have so are hundreds and thousands of people in the Palm Springs area. So I'm so glad you could be with me because in this hot atmosphere, I really would like to find out more about shamanism. Don't you? I mean, this is the mystical realm. Why is somebody called a shaman? Well, I invited on Dr. Jean Rochelle Solomon, PhD, who just wrote the book, Soul Matters. And it's about modern science confirming ancient wisdom. This is really, really fascinating. I just want to read a brief paragraph that she has in the book. It's uh, talking about soul matters is about a millennia old shamanic healing modality of soul retrieval that is based upon the idea that trauma signals a soul loss. That trauma signals a soul loss called dissociation. To restore an injured person to wholeness, the shaman journeys into a mystical reality to retrieve the soul essence and brings it back into ordinary reality. Wow. I want to find out how they do this. It's time to start looking away from the 3D world into other realities that actually exist in our day and time. So this is going to be quite fascinating. I think you're going to enjoy it. And uh, today we're just taking off on a mystical journey about soul matters. <laughs> so stay with us as we listen to these fast commercial breaks, and then we're going to be right back with Dr. Jean Rochelle Solomon. It's here, it's hot, and it's a must read. It's the science behind the Law of Attraction magazine. Every issue brings you great articles and in-depth how-tos from all your favorite Law of Attraction experts, authors, scientists, and medical professionals. Go to lawofattractionmagazine.net. That's lawofattractionmagazine.net. Did you know that every human uses only a small portion of their powerful mind? Jules Johnson, International Certified Hypnotherapist, wants to introduce you to your powerful mind in order to create your dream life. In as little as one session, Jules guides you into releasing limiting beliefs that keep you from achieving wealth, health, better relationships, and even true love. Schedule a session in Palm Springs or set up a Skype video session for those nationally and internationally. Jules would love to serve as your guide into living your dreams. Go to creativeguidedimagery.com or call 951-201-2166. That's creativeguidedimagery.com. Well, welcome, Dr. Solomon to Love Attraction Talk Radio. I am thrilled to talk about this mystical book. And there is so many things that people don't understand or realize about shamanism. And, and I know you're going to be able to explain a lot of it. But first, I want to ask you, if you don't mind, I want to ask you, how did you even get involved 
in researching out this subject of the soul matters? I mean, your book, how did you, when did you get involved in all this? Well, that's a long story. <laughs> <laughs> it's, well, I can take it down. It's, it's my curiosity and my own uh, paranormal experiences from childhood. Paranoia, t- paranormal. paranormal? Paranormal experiences, yeah, out-of-body experience, a near-death experience at a time when Raymond Moody had not even coined the term. Oh, my God. I had never heard about near-death experience, and nobody in my vicinity knew about it. But I experienced the real thing with going through the tunnel and going into the light and having a um, flashback of my life. And first, I didn't want to die. I I realized, my consciousness realized that I had died, and I protested. Uh, It was during the the birth of my first child because of the... um, stupidity, I have to say it bluntly, stupidity of doctors back then. And um, they caused me an unbelievable pain, which I wouldn't want anybody to experience. Uh, So I realized I had died and I protested because I wanted to be with my child and with my husband. And then being over there and being shown and being taken through the first um, flow flowing uh, movements of what everybody who experienced near-death near-death talks about I realized how beautiful it is over there and then I was given the chance to talk to people who are still down on earth and I realized how downtrodden they are how worried with fear with pain with everything that pertains to daily life and I tried desperately to reach through them kind of being up there, reaching through and wanting to tell them, no, 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 enjoy life while you're in it. It is so precious. It is so beautiful. Forget everything that worries you. It doesn't matter in the end. (sighs) And I could not get through. I realized nobody heard me. They didn't sense me being there. And uh, while I was trying how to get through, what to do, I was told that I would have to go back to my body And then I protested now the other way around. I didn't want to go back because I had realized I was in the presence of love and not even agape, certainly not sexual love, not even agape, but a force that is so profound. I didn't even have words for, but I realized I have come home and I didn't want to leave. I asked what would happen. Um, about my child and my husband and I was told that life would take care of them and that consoled me so I said no I'm not going back and I was told no you have to go back you have not finished your life and whoosh I was back in my body (laughs) I didn't have a choice (laughs) so that was a very profound experience Uh, and I tried to relate it later to um, my family and friends and of course nobody knew what to make out of it and they thought I would have gone crazy Uh, so I did not talk about it anymore then of course years later I was introduced to Elizabeth Kübler-Ross book about me and then of course uh, Raymond Moody and I realized wow that was all real I had experienced exactly what these people described too yeah wow and then I, that is so wonderful to meet those two. That would have been, oh, everything to me. Yeah. Wow. It is so powerful. Not that you would want to experience because it means pain. It means the actual moment of dying, which is caused by an enormous pain in my case. Uh, so in the end, of course, it was worth it, I would say, <laughs> because the pain is forgotten. Yeah. So it's so, just like childbirth. Your, your pain is forgotten and it's like, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. So For years that. I said, no, I don't want to have another child because of this experience during birth. Um, but then time heals and of course I had my wonderful child. I wanted to have another one. So yeah, <laughs> that's life. Life takes care of it. <laughs> wow, wow. Oh, so that got you on the path... Path of well, I paid attention. Yeah. 
Oblites mysticism. Of the strangeness of all that which we cannot explain. Oh, I love that. Tell, t- keep going, keep going. I just, I'm, I'm so fascinated. Well, um, I was originally um, an artist, a designer and artist. And um, then after we had moved um, to the U.S., Less than a year, less than nine years later, my husband died suddenly of brain cancer, and that shocked me into a state where I didn't want to live anymore. I had I pleaded with the gods to take me instead and let him live, oh. and they just loved, and nothing came out of this. So I, of course, I had two children. I had to go on, and then. I, yeah, it was via uh, Michael Hanna. I went to to Aslan Institute in California to a very interesting, um, life-changing event about brain consciousness and more. And there was introduced to Michael Hanna. So I got his book, The Way of the Shaman, and then signed up for... Uh, his classes, and once I had enough taken, I was accepted into his three-year intense um, advanced shamanic training program. And in order to balance this with something on the more scientific, academic, um, logical way, I decided to go back to university to study anthropology. So that worked well together. From there, of course, I could explain so many things. Michael Hanna talked about his experience in South America. And then, of course, I could go myself to Ecuador, to Guatemala, Brazil, Peru, Nepal, and studied with the people directly. And then I thought, okay, I'm, I'm where I need to be. It sounds like already you've had a fascinating life, but I got a feeling that you've got even more excitement throughout your life just learning about the shaman practices. Um, Yes, very exciting and rewarding, but it was all paid for with pain. Emotional pain, mental pain, physical pain. Which is, seems to me is normal in life. Yeah, yeah. you don't get anything for free. <laughs> but but because of that, I was open to the strange, mysterious happenings. And then I was lucky enough to um, study a semester of conceptual physics with a wonderful professor at my university, which, as I was lucky again, was Bryn Mawr, Bryn Mawr College. Oh my goodness! Yeah, one of the Seven Sisters universities. And uh, getting a glimpse into conceptual physics, I realized if I would have start to start again, or if I would be younger, I would study physics, quantum physics. So nevertheless, what I learned made me understand that um, physics is on the right way, finally admitting that Life is not a machine, or, or existence is not a machine. The universe is more of uh, an organism itself. Huh. And all the great quantum physicists spoke about this. You know, they said if they really go to the end of their um, mathematics, of their formulas, they come to a point where they have to accept there is a mystery, there is that which we normally call God, where the word God is spelled G apostrophe D to leave out the, the, um, the vowel as it is done in, in Hebrew. It, this is a space holder, this word for that which cannot be explained, which we cannot even fathom. Wow. And the deeper I studied into this and thought about it and did my own research, I realized that our human apparatus of perception is made to exist in this world where we come in as a spirit 
living in the flesh. We don't use everything that this apparatus offers us to use because Western science has trained us out of the mystical aspect of being. Yeah. But on the other hand, we even even by using all the, the our faculties and all the breadth and width this apparatus of perception via our brain and mind gives us, we could still not fathom and can't fathom. That's why um, the scientists are still reaching this wall where they have to say beyond this is something we have to confess and which is right now not accepted in academia. It's the mysticism of existence. Right. Oh, yeah, exactly. They try to keep us away from even exploring it. Yeah, because they would have to widen their own horizon. Many people, of course, do. Yeah, we have wonderful scientists, for example, like Robert Sheldrake or uh, Dr. Um, Amit Goswami and Bruce Lipton. There are many. Bruce but, Lipton. Mm. Yeah, many of them, like uh, Dr. Uh, Michael Hahner, had to leave academia because they were vilified. They couldn't talk about that which they knew was true. Many of them left academia. Yeah, that is such a shame. It's like they they are just not interested in expanding what, because they're set in their ways. So, but that's what I'm grateful for, you coming on. And it sounds like you had a lot of emotional pain but you had to go through that in order for you to learn what life was all about with the shaman's teachings. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, certainly. I would agree wholeheartedly. That's um, beautifully expressed. But I have to tell you, um, I was even attacked for bringing out this book and doing this research in order to support the shamanic work or to, to shine some light on how far we have come to even understand the parameters of shamanic healing. Yeah? Wow. So after doing this uh, QEEG work and um, dark field microscopy with the, both the blood of the client and myself and the QEEG work, both my brain on a computer with all the um, um, electrodes, just connected to my brain and the same with the client being connected to um, his her own uh, computer and then comparing and seeing what happens it is so fascinating and it confirmed what I had assumed and hoped to find that there was no path before nobody had ever done this people have done QEG during um, solo retrieval or shamanic work and have realized something is happening in the brain. Yeah. So I could show it to in, in more detail, showing that shamanic work happens outside of the shaman's brain or the practice. I call myself a shamanic practitioner. It happens outside. And it was confirmed by a neuroscientist who did the work. I had hoped for and assumed that we could show something, but I wasn't sure. And certainly not with the dark field microscopy. That has never been done before. While Dr. Bederson, who unfortunately died a couple of months ago, he was a researcher and practitioner of dark field microscopy. And he had shown that under observation, a drop of blood on the glass plate looked at under the microscope connects them with the person witnessing, in this case, the the microscopist, and the blood then shows what it had not done originally, um, so-called symplasts, which I call uh, holographic gestalt forms, and so-called worry cells. These are uh, dark energy fields showing in the blood, and also crystalline shapes, which Beagleson found out, um, show that after the therapy work is done, they, they demonstrate, these crystalline shapes demonstrate that, that ener- 
dark negative energy is dissolved and then leaving so the blood is healthier. But what I have found in my work, we took before the work a drop of blood from the client and a drop of blood from me. And they were put on different glass plates and put underneath this dark field microscope. And the dark field microscope is one that has the unique um, ability to show three-dimensionally the uh, uh, red blood cells and white blood cells and all the debris that's, that might be in the blood. So it's a beautiful way to observe it. But what we could show is not only that these simplest, these worry cells and these crystalline shapes appear after the blood is looked at, but that, let's say, um, concern of the client's blood, let's say a broken bone, shows up on the glass plate of the client's blood and then retrospectively shows up in my blood without having a connection. So I describe this as the, the equivalent of the quantum leap of discontinuity. It jumps over like uh, the, uh, the uh, neutron around the uh, atomic um, orbits. It jumps from one orbit to the next without being ever seen in between. So here's the same thing. This consciousness, what quantum physics said, consciousness is the ground of all being. So what we dis what I could conclude is that the client's blood doing this, showing a concern of its own, because it, it crosses through its body 24-7. Right. It knows about everything that goes on in the blood, in, in the body. And it's conscious, so it takes note. It shows a concern that needs to be addressed for healing. And then in order to make it even more potent, it shows it in my, the practitioner, the healer's blood, so that I take note. Wow. The rest for the client. Isn't it something? That is amazing. Yeah, when you have a chance to look then into the book, the, in, in these chapters of uh, dark field microscopy treatment, um, you will see that even um, an abortion, can show up. There appears a simplest in the exact shape of a fetus. And uh, the client had told me that um, she had had an abortion. And um, it was addressed during the healing. So while the microscopist looked at the blood, I was doing the solo healing for the client. Yeah, I need to explain that. Therefore, there was this double observation Wow. microscopist looking at it, observing, and me doing the work, and the blood of me, the blood of my client, still being connected to each body. That's the, in another um, quantum principle, uh, entanglement. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Simplifying. Was it's the first time I understood what you're just saying. That makes so much sense. I never understood entanglement before. Yeah. That's entanglement. So the blood in, in, in another room, under the microscope, still is connected via entanglement with my blood system and with the client's blood system. So it reacts to what is happening, what I do. So once the issue of abortion was addressed, the, the image of the fetus disappeared. And there's another fascinating thing I have to tell you. When I call these simplest holograms, it's not quite correct. And I'm still searching. Uh, I have a hunch what it could be, and I don't want to talk about it yet. Holograms are not three-dimensional. Right. They are two-dimensional only. But these simplest and worry cells are three-dimensional. They are two... Okay, let me explain the three-dimensionality. They push aside in the live blood on the glass plate, red blood cells, for example, or white blood cells, they push them aside, so they have, they have a body. But they are so big, if they would be real and had been in the blood while it was crossing through the veins, it would have crushed and, and cut the veins. So it only appears there on the glass plate three-dimensionally. And then they dissolve 
and the white blood cells move into the space again. Wow. So there is no logical way to explain that. It can only be observed and accepted. I can state the fact that. So there were so many, in, in all this work, so many details that make you wonder. I can tell you one thing because you reacted to the entanglement that you accepted. This work with the blood being still on being still connected to its life system while already on the glass plate and never be able to go back to the system made me understand the fact about um, when we have children, you know, your toddler falls, hurts itself, there is a little wound, there's blood, goes to the mama and mama says, oh no, it's fine again, blows onto it and yeah, it's fine again, kid walks away. Perfectly fine, no pain anymore. Right. I always thought, what is this placebo? What what is this? And we can even do this with ourselves. I have healed myself when I could not fall ill, but I had burned myself. I thought this explains it because the child was once a part of the mother's body. Intricate part, blood, cell, everything. Now the child has separated, but is still on a certain level connected with the mother's system. Right. And the child until the age of six is in the brain um, a frequency mode of delta, which is being connected with the universe and then certainly with the mother. So this is my explanation. And therefore during this time, the mother does real healing work because via her blood body system, she can still connect directly with the child's blood. Wow, that is so fascinating. That, I love it. Yeah, if that is not entanglement, what is? Yeah, that is so great. You know, this whole thing is reminding me of Dr. Harvey Beagleson yeah. who, and, and his holographic blood. And yeah. I had him on my show many times. Oh, and good, that, so you know that, him. Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, good. he just died a couple of weeks, a months ago. And yeah. oh, my goodness, this is exactly, tells a huge story that we basically remain in the 3D world. We're not willing to go out there and explore the mysticism that exists in the world today. Yeah. Well, since you have talked to Dr. Harvey Peterson, you will know he tried at universities to talk to the chemists, biologists, and tell them about this amazing happening, and they refused to even look at his yeah. slide. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, I know, I know. But he spoke with Dr. Emoto on a couple yes. of lectures, and that fits into what you were just talking about. Exactly. Oh my goodness. It's, it's, so his message still got out there. And matter of fact, I'm still very close with his family. Sons, yeah, the sons promote this. Yeah. At Adam some point and Josh, it will be accepted. Yeah. Yeah. But oh my goodness. Oh, oh, I'm so glad I've met you because this is powerful stuff. But see, now Harvey never talked about the shamanism. No. He was not introduced to this. And unfortunately, um, I could not send him my book while he was alive. Ah. He died shortly before that. I had so hoped I could talk to him now about this. He gave me permission to use his work. So he knew that I was creating this book, but that was about one and a half years ago. Oh, and wow. uh, I had promised them, as they had requested, that I send them my book once it's published. And when I was ready to send the book, I learned that he had moved on yes yes that was a shock to all of us but yeah. um, oh yes but that is so good because now i feel more connected to harvey than i've ever before but just yeah. talking about wow this is so wonderful so his work continues on actually because yeah. of his son but also because of your connection with him and your theories and the shamanism. Okay, so now we have talked about all this. Now, where does the shamanism come in 
to find the lost soul of all of this when a person gets sick right all right shams were the first doctors and psychologists because since we humans are around we experience trauma hunting accident or whatever it is and they realized pretty soon that the first thing one needs to do is stabilize the physical body because if the body does not survive there's no need to bring the soul back because the soul leaves totally 100% at the moment of death and i have experienced it i have seen um, people dying and then a kind of white mist comes out of the crown yeah it's amazing so these indigenous people 100 millennia ago they knew that we not, are not just body we are spirit or whatever terms they used in their language but they knew there was more because they were connected to their environment to the whole ecosystem they felt themselves as just one part of this whole existence that surrounds them they talked to the plants they talked to the trees to the mountains everybody had um, every entity they encountered for them had soul and was conscious and was therefore able to speak for self so they realized let's say it simplistically uh, one of the tribe members was hurt hunting an animal or fell down a precipice so they brought the body home and they had their herbs and whatever um, mechanisms and methods to heal the body and after 2 3 days when they realized the person will survive the shaman went out looked for the lost soul part and brought it back and blew it into the heart chakra and into the crown chakra heart is where our immunity sits heart chakra and solar plexus that's why our gut system has neurotransmitters has a brain because it can think as much as the brain does and the heart knows about the difference between self and other so together these two make the decision can for example can i allow this person to come into my space can i fall in love with this person is that person compatible with my system the same way as this system decides which food is uh, allowed to come in or which one is poisonous and should not come in so they make the um, difference they decide diff- the difference between self and other self non self and the crown chakra because it is understood was always understood by indigenous people that that's where the spirit comes in and you probably have heard about Rick Strassman he did research with um, dimethyl um, tryptamine which is an ingredient of of uh, ayahuasca which i took and he did not want to bring his people uh, through the process of ayahuasca so he used the extracted dimethyl tryptamine and allowed cl- um, volunteers to see what what happens to the system and they all experienced exactly what people who take ayahuasca experience that they come into the presence of god of something much greater than they are themselves uh. so rick strassman then with his research he said that dimethyltryptamine is most probably the spirit molecule and spirit molecule molecule wow. and let me explain this what we know is that 49 days after conception the the soul moves in so the fetus becomes an entity after 49 days, days 49 wow. days wow And it is this entry of the soul of the particular personality of the child after by re- reincarnation um happens per the search of dimethyltryptamine it comes with dimethyltryptamine into the pineal pineal uh, pineal, pineal uh, pituitary gland 
and that is to establishes the persona. Wow. Uh, at the moment of death, the leaving of the soul is again accompanied by a motion or an, a search of dimethyltryptamine. Tryptamine. So, so are they exiting through their through the? I cannot, I cannot explain the the mechanism of this, and I don't even think we really know it. To describe it, okay. but dimethyltryptamine is part of our makeup. Our body, our own body, produces it. Absolutely. For example, it comes in during orgasm. That's why the French call orgasm the little death timor, little death. It's something similar coming in, going out. Wow. Here. And it is very interesting that so many plants, not just. Uh, those that are used in the ayahuasca pool, both ayahuasca and, and um, the veriditas, forgot now the name, uh, but so many uh, grasses in our, um, on our continent, not just in South America, around the planet have uh, dimethyltryptamine. So it is part of life. Absolutely. And it absolutely, if you take that, it's supposed to help you sleep. And I know when I help people stop smoking, that mean for sleep. Yeah, that would help them because they couldn't have a solid night's sleep. So the tryptophan, and isn't that why we don't, you don't talk about melatonin? Oh, no, uh, uh, triple because isn't that when you eat too much Thanksgiving dinner? Your tryptamine just started. No, that's, that's a different thing. Tryptamine is different from dimethyltryptamine. Okay. Dimethyltryptamine okay. is a different uh, substance. Okay. Yeah, so, so I'm glad think, you straightened that out. Yeah, I don't think you would describe dimethyltryptamine uh, for better sleep. You couldn't even get it. Huh. Yeah. And um, it can be dangerous, so it has to be administered either by a doctor who knows exactly um, which amounts uh, a client can take in order to to um, have a healthy experience or by the ayahuasquero who administers it and uh, takes it himself during the ceremony and knows exactly how much a person can take or if he has to intervene via Marie-Ris um, Icaros to bring a person a little bit out of the experience or allow them to go deeper. So it is a very, very fine um, methodology. A lot of knowledge comes in. You have to study for years in order to be able to, to make it and to administer it. So, yeah. That's oh, okay. I thought it came in pill form. That's what I... Was. No. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, okay, so we're talking about two different it, things. Okay. Yeah, dip, it, ayahuasca and the, the uh, dimethyltryptamine is considered an entheogen. Oh, okay. It, it takes us into a connection with the gods in, the godhead in ourselves. I say. see. Okay, now getting back to the shamans, though they can... Get they can actually perform this and and get to the place where they can um, begin to heal because everything yeah. that you just said we're coming together now. The shaman can have a mystical experience that takes them out into the other's body so that they can help heal them. Um, yes and no. Uh, there's only a small part of shamanism that uses ayahuasca and therefore dimethyltryptamine. But uh, what is mostly used around the world on all, um, all continents is drumming. 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 The systematic drumming, about three to five beats per second, change the chemistry of the brain. This is what we have found out what so, uh, Michael Hanna already talks about. So, so is, is this like it, people are remembering the beating of the heart of the mother? Part two, yeah. Or let's, let's say uh, uh, 
very plainly. In our daily life, we are mostly in the brainwave mode, right. which is 30 to 30 hertz per second. And if we sleep, we go into alpha, beta, and then delta. And right. I talked about children until the age of six are being in, in delta mode. They are still connected to the outer um, dimensions. Um, so the drumming takes the brain from the everyday better mode in which we have to be in order to make decisions. Here's danger, here's this, here's that. Here we have to function, uh, which is important. Uh, it takes the brain into the theta mode, which is um, much slower. It's four to seven hertz per second. And that is the mode where we can let go of our logical thinking and can accept uh, finer tunes that come in from the environment and from there we can connect with the spirits. We are open to hear, to sense, to see, to taste what is going on. So drumming has allowed the, the shamans to go in yeah, you could say trance, it's not really a trance, but in, into a state where they are able to connect with the realm. Maybe we, we could even say what Robert Sheldrake called uh, the um, morphogenic fields. Ah. Yeah. To, to sense where a client um, misses something, soul, or where there is illness and how it can be rectified. And being in this state of mode, as I figured out, the shaman then causes the client to, again, through entanglement, being in synchrony with the brain waves of the shaman. And their healing can happen. So the shaman knows where to go, which entity spirits to ask for assistance, for advice, and where to bring healing from, and then channel it into the client, simplistically speaking. But it happens mostly per um, concussion, per drumming, in all, um, in all uh, um, indigenous societies. Then, of course, everywhere people used what they could, ayahuasca, or uh, ibogaine, whatever they had in their environment, what they found out that helped to, to get us out of this everyday simplistic thinking, functional thinking into the more mystical realms to, to then create and initiate healing. Wow. So the drumming can help get everyone into, the, well, the shamans into that state. Yeah, and the client who is in presence. Okay, so the client feels it as well. Yeah, yeah. So, but the purpose of the shaman, explain what the shaman does then to heal or brings the soul retrieval back. Yeah, um, I only talk about uh, soul retrieval in my book. I limited myself to this. Um, and, and it sounds like, boy, you have got a couple more books in you. <laughs> it, it sounds like you, you just know so much, but this is so fascinating. So go with the soul retrieval. Yeah. Um, I was fascinated by soul retrieval because <clears throat> with every client, I learned so much more from the spirits, from the field, than I learned from my client. So I didn't even want to know everything because if a client would talk, would tell me all the little details, my, um, this better, my better brain would be busy thinking about this, that, and the other. So I asked my clients only about big uh, situations in their life, where, where it hurts, where they were, where they experienced trauma. And then I connect with my spirit helpers because it is known, no, they know more from up there. They are outside of this reality. So they have a wider view. They know more than I do directly here. And they tell me do this, that, or the other. And then I have particular spirit helpers who assist me in doing soul retrieval. Because 
I have to go into regions um, where at times I, as a living person, could not go. For example, at times I have to connect with deceased relatives of my client in order to retrieve a soul piece. Or some relative has died and is still holding on to a soul piece of my client, not out of spite, but uh, more out of, of immense loving connection. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And by doing so, the person who has died cannot move over to the realm of the dead. So it happens often that I then have to, um, I have to talk to this person, mother, father, whatever it is, and have to explain the situation to them that uh, holding on to the soul piece of my client does not support them, doesn't allow them to move over. And it harms my client because this portion is missing in their life. They operate, uh, let's say, on, on 60% of their original soul essence. They have lost, normally when we go through life, we, we lose uh, a part of soul per uh, illness, per uh, being traumatized physically, emotionally, um, losing a loved one, all this. So these are all moments where part of our soul needs. So I have to deal with strange situations. Sometimes I have to go back into a former life. And you know about this from, um, from um, what is it, um, from your work as a, a hypnotherapist. We know this from, from Dolores Cannon. She talks about these yeah. things. So I have to connect with the person, either with the former incarnation of my client or with somebody who my client knew in a former uh, incarnation wow. and have to bring the soul piece back. So there's often um, interesting, um, uh, what is it, back and forth conversation going on between me and such an entity. And, so and what, what you're trying to do is release that person from they're being invaded or what is it that, what is the symptom that the live person is experiencing? Why would they seek this out? It, it is more, uh, most of the time it is more um, emotional attachment. Okay. So they're grieving yeah. so much that this helps them to separate. So they yeah. live in this 3D world a little bit easier. Yeah. I had a client who was holding on to the hand of his grandfather who had died when the client was, I guess, eight years old. And at the same time, the grandfather was holding on to the hand of my client because neither wanted to let the other one go because they were afraid the other one would suffer without this connection. I see. Yeah, I had to explain to both, and it was an amazing thing. Um, I had to talk to the grandparents, to the grandfather. Um, yeah, but I don't want to let my grandson suffer. And I said, no, the grandson is now an adult person. He doesn't suffer, but he needs to sort his back. So then I had to go back, and in while I was in Delta mode, I had to talk to my client and say, please let the hand of the grandfather go because he cannot move on to the realm of the dead while you hold each other's hand. So it was back and forth. And then at the moment when the grandfather agreed to let the hand of his grandson go, and the grandson had already agreed to let the hand of the grandfather go, it was kind of a whoosh. My client, my real life client who was lying next to me doing this, doing my um, uh, my search, um, told me that he felt a surge of energy. He became very hot and felt my hot hand at exactly the moment when that happened. We talked about it later on and discovered that. So there was a, an energetic um, let Separation. go. Separation. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, all, all these experiences I had, or let's say a client had a car accident. So... <laughs> I go out and scout to find the, the soul piece 
very often it is still at the place where the car accident happened. Um, and I bring the piece back and then blow it. I come back into this reality and blow the piece into the heart chakra of the client and any remnants into the crown chakra to make sure everything goes in and then the client um, senses back what has come and welcomes everything back. And um, after a while, the client getting used to this new situation, I tell the story which I got around the happenings, so leaving and so returning. And I always tell my client, the story I tell you might be literal or it might be metaphorical. And this is up to you to decide. And let's say um, I get the feeling that the client drowned. So then my client might tell me, yes, at that age, at that moment, it was, I felt as if I would be drowning in emotion. Or the client said, I really drowned and somebody rescued me. Wow. Wow. There is a knowing out there in the field where everything that happens is stored, is still available. Might be the Akashic field. Yeah. No. But it's this knowing is accessible. And I have even found that a negative happening from the past can be made unhappen by the intention of making it unhappen. So the happening is deleted from the past as if it never happened. Wow. From the deleted from the past as if it never happened. That is yeah. really something. Yeah. So do you think that you got this, um, your communication from your near-death experience? Do you think if your near-death experience never happened, you would be in this line of work, your book? Well, since I had the near-death experience, I couldn't say one way or the other. I could assume that it um, sensitized me and allowed me to accept something that I might not have accepted otherwise. But I know from shamanic practitioners who did not have a near-death experience, and they are very good shamanic practitioners. So they might have had other experiences. Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting question. It's so difficult to probe because we cannot uh, do it in, in, uh, in research. Yeah. If you're a near-death experience and then I take it back, let's see how you react. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's no scientific measurement for any of this, but it's, it's, just, it's just so fascinating. Yeah, and what I realized, I, I cannot present direct, um, research outcome that soul retrieval happens, but I can present second-hand research outcomes. So I have the diagrams, the brain diagrams. Yeah, you will you will see how what they demonstrate, what they show. Uh, as for for a neuroscientist, is that what I did really happened. So for example, my brain, my frontal lobes at a certain moment go into hypercoherence and it, it is shown in the diagram. And then about a couple of seconds later, the client's brain goes into sync in the same delta mode or sometimes even gamma mode. <laughs> and it is known that... Um, these are the brain wave modes where we connect with that which is beyond our 3D reality. Wow. So the evidence is there, but we cannot, since we are alive, we cannot do have a trial and error. Yeah. And for, there is another thing. We don't even have the apparati, the instruments to measure. Oh, right. So everything that we measure is based on um, uh, magnetoelectric uh, basis. And these energies, they are, they are operating outside of 
magnetoelectricity. Well, so can anybody do what you are doing? I mean, you've got this incredible educational background on it, but can people become shamans or is it strictly in the, by the local uh, regions? How, can anybody be a shaman? Because I've met a lot of people who write books who say they're shamans. Well, in the indigenous world, nobody really wants to become a shaman because it means suffering. It means limiting one's life, let's say staying away from sexuality for a long time in order to use this energy to inquire and learn and practice, staying away from certain types of foods, being in isolation in the loneliness, because you cannot sit in front of your computer having your TV on and the radio on and then think that you can connect with the fine-tuned universe out there. On the other hand, we are all equipped, we are all capable of, let's say, becoming a shamanic practitioner. But like with any other profession, there is also either talent or practice or ability, propensity involved. Not everybody becomes a world-known composer or a violinist. So there is, you, you, you have to have a drive, you wanting yes. to do it. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, being a shaman or saying I'm a shaman has become kind of a fad. It, it's, yeah. it works well when you go to a cocktail party. I have, I have met in the Amazon, I have met people who went there, they wanted to take ayahuasca just to be able to say, ah, oh, I took ayahuasca. So the shamans don't work with that. They kick you out. I you see. have to prove yourself through your work and your discipline that you can do the work. Discipline is a big word in shamanic um, law. A shaman doesn't want to be a shaman because it's difficult. Difficult work. Goodness. Or, for example, simple things like building a labyrinth and connecting with the energies underneath, the water and, and um, electric energies. I had experiences. It showed me that everything is alive and everything had a voice and everything participates in the unfolding of existence. It's not only that we depend on life. Life depends on us, on each of us. It's a co-production. Oh, my goodness. How beautifully put. Even in politics, we try to use radical methods in order to resolve something when in reality this needs to, it resolves itself on a much greater scale. And we should just insist and stay out of uh, our human understanding for a while and let the, let the spirits or the, the universe itself um, regulate. Wow. Wow. This is good. Well, we're all out of time. Thank you so, so much for coming on. We're going to have you back really soon to, con can to continue this discussion because there is so much more we need to know. And please, I'm going to urge everyone listening to go out and get her book. It is so fascinating and we've got so much to learn. And this is our starting point right now. So thank you so much for taking the time and away from Maui. And, and thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Jules, for having me. And if I could um, say one thing, it would be very nice if any reader would leave a review, positive review at Amazon. That helps so much. Yes, yes. Easy. To, to make a breakthrough with a book like this. Yes, but um, this book is going to help us understand our lives much, much more. And that's what's important. That's why you're still living. That's why you came back. <laughs> that's a blessing for all of us. So thank oh, you. Oh, I haven't so even much. thought about it. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> thank you so much. It was a joy talking to you, Jules. Until next time. Okay. Aloha. Aloha.
Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back next week with another great show from Law of Attraction Talk Radio. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send an email to jules at loaradionetwork.com and have a great week.